0: Welcome to the Animalitia Podcast. I am Ben. I am here tonight with a new episode. I'm coming to you straight from Studio T on a cold November night in the Midwest. Studio T here nestled right on the edge of the forest. And I've got some things to discuss. Um, I'm going to jump right into the, the first thing I want to talk about. And that's about the Terminator franchise and uh specifically jumping off at the new movie. So, Tom and I we saw this last weekend, right? Oh, uh, yep. Yep, last weekend we saw the new Terminator. Um I have I've basically been neutral. So like Terminator 2 Judgment Day was probably my favorite film ever. I saw that when I was five. That literally inspired me for everything. Not just film, but everything creatively. All my creative inspiration started with that movie. So it's a big part of who I am. And all the Terminator sequels that have been attempted, I think they were good in their own ways, except for Genesis. That was a horrific piece of shit. But... And as much as I dislike how Hollywood has become nothing but these overly saturated brands just reproducing, rebooting, remaking the same shit over and over again. There's also a part of me as a fan that many people can relate to where no matter how many shitty Terminator films they make, I will go see them. Simply to see them and observe them and analyze them. Especially if Arnold Schwarzenegger is alive and kicking in and in these films. So everyone, there's a lot of hype, a lot of positive hype around the new Terminator film, Terminator Dark Fate. I didn't really buy into it because a couple reasons. First of all, my expectations have been low for a long time with this. And... So we had, after Judgment Day, we had Terminator 3, Rise of the Machines, which came out in 2003. Then we had Terminator Salvation, which was, uh, it wasn't really a sequel. It was just um, a different part of the story that takes place in the future. Different cast, different director, different writer, all that. Um, I forget when that came out. I want to say like 06 or 07 or something. And then after that, they tried that again with Terminator Genesis, and Arnold was no longer the governator and he came back for that film. That was, that was a disaster. And so now they have Terminator Dark Fate and James Cameron was back. Linda Hamilton was back. Uh, a lot of the original pieces were there many years later. And so the idea was, this was gonna be a direct sequel from Terminator to Judgment Day, pretending none of them had ever happened, none of them had been rebooted or remade, and this we're just gonna sweep those all under the rug and pretend they never happened. So <clears throat> um so here's the problem with that. I thought think Terminator 3 Rise of the Machines was actually a very good sequel to Terminator 2 in terms of story and character development and where it possibly could have gone without forcing it. I'll touch base on that in a bit. I need to go back to Dark Fate and what pissed me off. So here's what pissed me off. So right away in this film, you have a plot twist. Anybody listening, I'm going to spoil... The plot, I'm going to spoil the movie. This is full of spoilers. Do not listen further if you do not want to, because I'm going to spoil it. So, like the first five minutes of the film, they have actually a really cool scene where it's deep fake technology, meaning they took the faces of Linda Hamilton and Edward Furlong from their characters Sarah Connor and John Connor from the 1991 film Judgment Day, and they put them on... Um, actors who have similar body types and they basically remade a brand new scene that looked like it was straight from 1991 and it was really cool like awesome to see but here's the plot twist so they're on a beach hanging out after judgment day and that's kind of the plot they're in guatemala i believe and john connor is at the bar spitting some game with a girl he's like 12 because um, you know that's what he does and then the T 800 comes out of nowhere. Well, at the end of Terminator 2 Judgment Day, He they destroy him in lava and his computer chip. So he just shows up on the beach with a shotgun and he kills John Connor. John Connor's dead. So now the story is completely rewritten. And um, so now we have all new characters um, Linda Hamilton as Sarah Connor. She is a completely new motive years later in the future. And the director really stood by this plot twist. Um, and supposedly him and James Cameron butted heads. Cameron did not direct this. He was in a, a producer on it. They butted heads over it because Cameron was sort of like, well, don't do that. Like, we need John Connor. John Connor is basically the main character and this larger-than-life hero, as far as the Terminator story goes. Well, the director did not like that, and basically he said, John Connor needs to die because it makes the most sense for the story. We need new characters, and these characters need a new motive to keep going forward, so John Connor dying is the best way to get the story moving. I completely disagree. Like, I think that's just fucking stupid. Just terrible as a as a fanboy like absolutely not not acceptable um and yeah that killed it for me and then so later in the movie you have the t-800 back and him and sarah connor cross paths at no point is there any explanation why he killed john connor um I think the most natural thing to assume was that the T 800 comes off an assembly line and this was like a new model. So it wasn't the exact same, like a machine. It was just a different type of machine. That was the exact same, just like a car coming off an assembly line, but that was never explained. And there was this connection between Sarah Connor and the T 800, like, it was personal, like, you killed him, and she knew who he was from Judgment Day, but none of this was ever touched on. Absolute horseshit storytelling. Just absolutely terrible. Um, and the part where they're humanizing the Terminator, because he completed his mission, which was killing John Connor, but the mission before was to protect John Connor, and then he was destroyed. So... There's some pretty big holes there that should have been addressed and um, they weren't. I was disappointed. I thought it was lazy. Now, things I liked about it. The budget was huge. The effects were awesome. It was good action. It was visually entertaining. Uh, The new characters, I was salty to even give them a chance, but um, the actors and actresses who portrayed them did a pretty good job. So they did the best they could. Um, I mean, it's worth seeing. Like I said, they can make Terminator 27 and they can keep playing with this timeline that obviously has no fucking rules. And I was I was telling someone, um, you know, there's hope for me because I know even though John Connor's dead, that just means in the next sequel that they can fuck with the timeline again and maybe in the future or the past, whatever it is, that he goes back and he sends a Terminator after the Terminator is going to terminate him. And you just keep going back and forth. So John Connor can come back. So I shouldn't get um, too wound up about this. Um, but that being said, it wasn't a good sequel for the story. It was terrible. And it doesn't sound like the director, I think. Um, I forget his name, but doesn't sound like him and Cameron are going to work together. And they wanted to... Um, do another like trilogy out of this or something doesn't sound like that's happening because it's bombing at the box office um the international numbers are not good either which is pretty much these big studio movies especially these franchises and remakes and reboots and brands really depend on those international markets to uh make Um, a profitable return considering the high budget in this and this one i think the budget was under 200 million uh somewhere around 180 hey tom can you look that shit up 196 million 196 million i was off but yeah so under 200 million um so obviously, a two hundred million budget on a move, two hundred million dollar budget on a movie, you're going to need a pretty big return. So you're going to depend on those international markets quite a bit, which did not happen for this. So currently, it does not look good for the future of Terminator, but that's probably happened before. So in my lifetime, I'm sure there will be eleven more reboots, and Arnold will live to be a hundred and three, and he'll just keep coming back as the T eight hundred, and they'll keep creating bullshit reasons why and not explaining if he's the original one or he's coming off an assembly line of the t-800s um john connor will die go back in time prevent him prevent himself from dying and kill himself then send a terminator back to kill him to prevent himself from killing himself and then send someone back in time to prevent that from happening and Yeah, who knows? Sky's the limit, I guess. So I'm going to get back. So Terminator 3, Rise of the Machines. Terrific story, in my opinion, to follow up the sequel. I think um, Nick Stahl was John Connor in that film, and I think the casting was really accurate. John Connor's character was very accurately portrayed, I thought, as far as how the story should have progressed. So Judgment Day... Um, you know, they prevent Judgment Day in Terminator 2. So, does John Connor really have a purpose to exist in the future? If they, he came from the future with this war against Skynet, and he goes back in time, um, or sends the Terminator back in time to protect them, and they prevent Judgment Day, does he really have a future now? So, in Rise of the Machines, um, the John Connor character that Nick Stahl plays, he's kind of this, uh this alcoholic like this drug abuser he's rough around the edges he's kind of keeping a low profile he's sort of a drifter um obviously struggling with mental illness Sarah Connor's deceased um so very good um I think very accurate future of what someone in that position would essentially turn into because he wouldn't just become an accountant or something you wouldn't uh you wouldn't just settle into normalcy. You'd kind of have, you'd kind of be haunted by this, and it'd have some type of emotional trauma on you, and uh, it'd affect you mentally. I thought that was really good. And when the T-800 shows back up in that movie, you know, John Connor's character is like, "Wait, what the hell? Like, you know, why is someone after me? We prevented this. We stopped Judgment Day." And then all he says is, no, we delayed the inevitable. Judgment Day, we can never stop it. So it's coming back at us. Very good way to keep it going. And then so John Connor now is like, oh, fuck, I got to keep fighting. What's next? So the T-800 is protecting him and this girl that he knows who annoys the shit out of him. And eventually he learns that this girl ends up being his spouse and in this um, future where they're battling Skynet. They get together and their children become important for the future. And that's kind of where the story goes. And uh, I think it was simple, well done, and I think it made a lot of sense. So this is an unpopular opinion. I think Terminator 3 Rise of the Machines was a perfect sequel to Judgment Day in terms of what anybody could do to make it successful. Salvation was well done too. And that was cool because... Christian Bale was a good casting call. He was a good choice. Um, he did John Connor well. And that was more based around the war itself, which was an interesting dynamic. Um, Sam Worthington did pretty well in that as um, sort of like a human Terminator hybrid struggling with uh, struggling with that. Genesis is just a fucking dumpster fire. I I liked the idea of how they took Skynet. Um, they basically made it Apple, where everyone has these devices that are smart and they're getting lazy and they're depending on all this smart technology to do everything for them. And it's running their lives without them really knowing it. And then it just kind of um, goes live and becomes self-aware and sees humans as a threat. I kind of liked that. I thought that had a lot of potential until the twist. The twist in that movie was so ridiculous. I remember that was the first film in my life. I walked out of the theater. I stormed out because it was so dumb. I I can't even quite explain how stupid that was because basically the twist was that John Connor created Skynet. And it's like, wait, what? So he created Skynet to to send the terminator back in time to to kill him and then send it back in time to protect him from being killed from skynet although he made skynet like it was shock for the sake of shock and a twist for the sake of a twist anyone who thought that was good i'm sorry like you're tripping you're crazy that was just absolutely awful I remember being in the theater and inside like I'm inside the theater and I see that scene and then that's the twist and he's like I'm John Connor and I created Skynet. I'm like no what the fuck are you kidding me this is bullshit and I left and I'm just like nope not happening. I almost wanted to buy another ticket so I could go in and walk out again. It was that bad. But yeah, so that's my thought on that. Um, kind of a disappointment, but you know, whatever. It was an experience. And I will say this, I think Stallone is doing a little bit better right now because the new Rambo was absolutely stellar. It kicked ass. The story was fantastic. The story, the arc of the character, as far as John Rambo, like going back from the very original to the sequels, the new one, this movie ends perfectly. It's timely because it touches on a subject that is very real, human trafficking, and it does it very accurately. And it's caused controversy. I don't really understand what's controversial about it because it's, it's real life and it was not made with a political perspective it was made with a, a kind of a realistic lens like hey this is what's happening and emotionally it hit you really hard and like you invested in this emotionally like it will make you tear up but when he gets his vengeance in that film man are you on the edge of your seat um it is violent it is gory like it was borderline horror because John Rambo in that acts like a serial killer he has nothing left to lose he's old he's on his he's just all out and like he's on his final stand so badass and what I really like about that is in 2019 you have all these films with these massive budgets and these a-listers and these studios and Everyone is trying so hard to be interesting and um, just different. And there's this overly saturated dialogue and unnecessary overacting. And it's just, it's all garbage. This is my opinion. It's all garbage. With this Rambo film, Stallone literally took the template from these films in the 80s, where everyone had a short intention span with these action films the ball just kept rolling. The story kept going. It kept going like just faster and faster and faster. There's no moment that was boring because it just, the story picked you up and it kept carrying you. And this is why those eighties action flicks were cheesy and corny, but so much fun because they were so entertaining and, um, it didn't lose your attention. So he takes that template from like the eighties and applies it in 2019 with all the technology and the high production quality and the gore and the violence and make something absolutely stellar that kicks everything else that's been out right in the balls. I love that film. The new Rambo, absolutely incredible. So he's doing a little bit better than what Arnold's been doing. So, you know, it's funny. It's 2019. There's, Terminator was out. Rambo was out. Men in Black was out. Chucky was out. (laughs) Toy Story was out. Mm, What decade are we in? Everything's just become a brand. It's become a brand, licensed to print money, reproduce. And sometimes that's okay, but, you know, some original content would be nice. Um speaking of Rambo about let's see today is the 23rd and on November 21st it was the anniversary of Rocky the 1976 Stallone film Rocky um, I want to talk about this for a quick minute because this is very cool Um hold on one second let me hydrate here so <clears throat> The story of Rocky and how Stallone made that film is really one of the most inspiring um, Hollywood stories or rags to riches stories in general. So the story was, you know, you have so many versions of this, so many articles written, what Stallone has said himself. So I'm going to paraphrase everything I've ever read about this and I'm going to do my own version the best I can. So Stallone basically was a struggling actor from New York and he decided he had to go to L.A. to make it. He had done the Italian Stallion in 1970 or 71. Hey, Tom, can you look that shit up? <laughs> um, yeah, 1970. 1970. The movie titles The Party at Kitty and Studs. A lot of desperation after being bounced out of his apartment and being homeless. Yep, so homeless, desperate. Wanting to be an actor, he did the Italian Stallion in 1970. So he leaves New York and he goes to Los Angeles, and um, he is inspired to write the Rocky script. And he does after seeing a boxing fight. He's not doing hot in L.A. though; it's way too competitive. Um, he his dream is to be an actor, but he's also writing, and he writes the Rocky screenplay. So at the time, he is I believe he's homeless. He's very broke. And he's so broke he has to sell his dog because he can't afford to feed his dog. And he doesn't rather break his heart selling it than not being able to feed it and have to watch it be hungry. So he sells his dog. That's how broke he is. And he finds someone who wants to buy the Rocky screenplay. And they offer him like 360000 which is a lot of money. But under the condition, like, he is not allowed to act in it, which is what he wanted. Because the, he was a homeless nobody. He couldn't make it as an actor. They they wanted the studio to have it where they could have like a uh, uh, already established actor do the role so they could you know print money easier. So he turned it down, and in interviews he basically said like he already hit rock bottom, so like what was the point of going farther down? Because he 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 felt something he believed in this script, and he just had to stay true to himself. So he keeps like selling it, and he gets lower offers like lower offers and um he ends up selling it to someone who lets him act in it and he got a <clears throat> the movie itself got a million dollar budget now he didn't get a million the movie itself from the studio got a million he got the paid for the screenplay and then he was guaranteed the starring role and he might have had some hands on stuff I don't think he was a producer or anything but I think he had some type of influence I'm not too sure. So he ends up but the rights to the screenplay I think he sold for like 35,000 or something crazy. It was a huge drop off from the 360 he was offered. So he sells it for 35,000, they can make a million dollar movie and he gets to be the star and the lead actor. And they were tight in the budget and they did almost everything in one take because they tried to rush this film in 28 days. And it ends up making like $205 million off of one, the $1 million budget. And then obviously decades later, it's made, I think, close to a billion. So it's one of the most profitable movies of all time. So he rolled the dice on himself entirely and made that happen. And what's a cool part of the story is as soon as he got paid that 35000 for that screenplay, he supposedly hunted down the person that he sold his dog to and he paid them 15,000 for his dog back like that was like supposedly the first thing he did so then at that point he had 20,000 and then this movie made 205 million internationally and domestically off of um a million dollar budget and the rest is history and he became one of the biggest stars ever by rolling the dice and making that huge of a risk so i thought It'd be cool to bring some attention to that as I was talking about Rambo and some of these throwbacks and these sequels because that's a damn cool story. And I think a lot of people can learn a lot from that. All right. Um, One final thing I want to get into is... I'm sure everyone has heard about Disney Plus by now Because it's all over everywhere Everybody has it Everyone's losing their shit over it Um, It's on social media Disney Plus So yay, Disney's awesome All of our childhood memories And all of these wonderful childhood films We all hold so dear to our hearts, right? We get to stream it And a bunch of other shit too Because you think about it, Disney owns about 40% of all the entertainment media on the planet now. Um, Especially after the controversial Fox merger. So here's a list of companies that are owned by Disney in the entertainment industry. Disney, obviously, Pixar, Lucasfilm, Marvel Entertainment, Marvel Studios, Touchstone, an 80% stake in ESPN, 60% 60% stake in Hulu, ABC, Fox networks, 50% of A and E lifetime channel and the history channel. And they also own Warner brothers. And those are just the major companies. Um, if you trickle those down, there's a lot of other smaller companies they own through them, obviously. So yeah, Disney owns 40% of all the entertainment media on the planet. um, that's kind of crazy. Cause if you think about that, that is one company that owns all these other companies. So they're controlling a lot of what content is available to people, what they're seeing and what the message is. Um, if you go back a couple episodes to my episode about the Illuminati and I talk about Vivendi and how these <clears throat> Vivendi is this media conglomerate in, uh, that owns all six major record labels so then you know my theory is that it's a kind of a corrupt corporate structure where they they own all these companies and they happen to be politically active so my question was do they have some type of influence or some type of agenda with this amount of power that they have and the amount of money they invest into politics, do they have an agenda that they wish to inflict on the artists who represent their labels and their companies, something to think about. So I'm going to read some statistics about Disney. Um, The risk, I'm not going to get too political here, but just in the 2020 um, election cycle, Disney has made contributions of $2.2 million, which ranks 21 out of 15,677 qualified participants. And they have lobbied a total of about $3.37 million. That's not as high. It only ranks 103 out of 3,788. And between candidates and party interests themselves, they're split about 50-50. And what's interesting is if you look at the 2020 election cycle, focusing particularly on presidential candidates, um, they have donated to multiple presidential campaigns and I'm not going to dig too much into this, but ranked in order from, um, who they've donated to the most, to the least, um... The top six are um, Democrat candidates, but actually the seventh, surprisingly, is Trump. So that's kind of interesting. They're a little bit skewed, um, more so to the left, but um, all in all, it's sort of skewed. So that's kind of interesting with their political interests. Um, However... When it comes to individual contributions and lobbying from the company as individuals who own shares or actual um, the organization themselves, it's about seventy-five twenty-five in favor of individuals. So it looks like those interests come from the individuals who represent the company versus um, political agendas from the company themselves. So... On top of all this, Disney does have a dark history. There's a lot of different stuff I could get into. I'm going to just kind of list off a few things because it's not that interesting to get into, but I think people who might not have heard of any of this might be a little shocked. But first of all, um, Walt Disney himself was not a good dude. He was an anti-Semite. He had... Supposedly attended some pro-Nazi meetings and like organizations and he worked, had, um, Nazi film propagandists tour the Walt Disney studios. He was obviously very sexist man. Um, uh, he did, there's a lot of copyright issues where some back in the day, Disney ripped off a lot of characters and kind of fucked the people over that they ripped off when these characters became popular, And then here's just some random stuff about Disney World and shitty things Disney has done in general. Um, They've been known to file lawsuits against daycare centers in Florida that use Disney characters painted on the walls, and they've actually financially devastated some small business owners by doing that. Um, A lot of the actors who dress up in the costumes at Disney world have come out and said that in order to do their job and always be happy and make kids laugh that they drink a lot of alcohol. And so a lot of them are drunk. Um, or so they say themselves that obviously doesn't apply to everyone who does that. Um, Disney has been known to not run thorough background checks on the people who work in their parks, specifically the ones who dress up in characters, which would be the most disturbing. And 35 of their employees who partake in those character outfits have been proven to be predators or have controversial criminal backgrounds and... This was an article that was uh, written in 2014 and it dated back to 2006. So, since 2000, between 2006 and 2014, 35 people had been discovered of having predatorial uh, criminal backgrounds. Um, Something, the River Country Water Park had a brain eating parasite and it was shut down in 2001. Um, That was called. Man, I'm going to slaughter this. Um, I need a, I need a doctor here. Nagleria falaria? Here, hold on. I'm going to get a doctor to talk to us. Nagleria falaria. Nagleria falaria, a protozoa that is a pathogenic free-living amoeba. Infection with Nagleria falaria causes primary amoebic meningoencephalitis. Yeah, I knew some of those words. Um it's obviously a brain eating bacteria in the waters of their water park where a lot of people enjoy and you know, swimming at. Uh it's kind of a big deal. Yeah, yep. One other weird thing about Disney is this um supposedly a lot of people have had fatal accidents at the park, whether it was a heart attack and they died before first responders got there or there was a kidnapping or people have drowned in the water park there's been a quite a few like definitely over a dozen incidences and disney pays to cover all that up um so you know technically like no deaths have ever occurred at disney world and they can promote that but supposedly that's not the truth um so yeah there's some dark stuff behind disney and i wanted to just sort of bring some of that stuff up if none of you have ever heard that um you want to go down some rabbit holes research it but i don't really want to get into the deep shit or the really dark shit um but yeah and going into that when you own when a company owns like 40 percent of the entertainment media on the planet that's um no wonder like we have all these reboots and remakes and everything's just a brand because like They control everything. Everything is run by a handful of select companies. Um, That being said, I kind of like what Netflix represents, in a sense. Um, Let me explain that. And this also goes back to just kind of the movie studio thing. You hear me talk a lot about, with uh, films that come out in theaters, you've got the international market and the domestic market. And how this works is you take these films and these franchises like Star Wars or The Avengers or Fast and Furious or Jurassic Park and you have a massive budget. And that budget, if you take the amount of domestic sales, like the amount of people in the United States going to the theater to see these movies, the amount of money they make is a lot, usually significantly less than the budget of the film itself so it's a loss but where these films really succeed is the international market because culturally um a lot of these american films do really big specifically in markets in asia um i'm not too familiar with what's successful in europe but i'm sure there is some but i do know asia is huge so these international markets really drive the profit so If these these films are surviving and these studios are surviving on the international market, if that were to go away, um, not only would so many of these films and franchises absolutely tank, because all of them would be losing money, some of these studios would go bankrupt. So it's kind of interesting to think about, because if that happened, would there be some type of revolution Where filmmakers would be making, like independent filmmakers would have a chance to make stuff that's interesting that people would need to see because all these major studios have like crashed and burned so bad. It's interesting to think about. And what I like about what Netflix is doing, or what I find particularly interesting about them, is they don't have that issue that these uh, franchise films have in theaters where they're dependent on the international market in order to make a profit. Because Netflix already has like, what, a billion users and they're worldwide. It's the fastest way to stream content. And if you're in a place like Minnesota, people just sit in their houses all winter and watch movies and stream shit. So their business model already works. So they have the audience. They have all the audience they could possibly need. And they're made so much money that they have the ability to take actors who are A-listers um, or just other successful actors and really produce their own original content. And they kind of have a lot more creative control because they can be a lot more experimental with it because, you know, the 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 budget isn't as dependent on that balance of domestic and international market like you get a someone who's popular and you have something interesting, like you have this gigantic worldwide market, and it allows them, I think, to play creatively a little bit more and be a little bit less safe. Um, I think that's kind of cool. I'm not necessarily saying I want these major studios to fail in Hollywood because um, I really like going to movies. I think it's important. I think it's one of the last few real experiences we have as humans where like a bunch of strangers go out in public and they share like a piece of art together. It's a really cool thing. And I think that might need to be dependent on these massive studios and these terrible like reboots and remakes and franchises and brands in order to have that um, type of business be sustainable. So I would not want to see that go away. So I'm not saying Hollywood needs to die or anything. But I think alternatives are um, they are a good thing because it creates competition and um, it's just better for the sake of art. And yeah, so I'm going to try to wrap things up here, trying to get my points across. But um, yep, I'm presenting the dark side of Disney to everybody who's losing their shit over Disney+. Plus. There's some stuff you might not know. Or you might know and just might not think about it. So think about it if you like. Um, And yep, that's my opinions on Terminator and why it sucks and it's hopeless, why Stallone is still kicking ass, Um, what Netflix is doing, that's cool, and more rants about the international and domestic market shares and profits of these franchises and these reboots and remakes and movie brands that refuse to die. So that's all I have for tonight. Thank you for anyone who's listened to my psycho babble. I'm Ben, and this is Anna Militia, and Anna Militia is out.